This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the world of political podcasts, there are experts, there are pundits, and then there's Tom Powell. Happy Friday, and welcome to another episode of the Second Half Podcast with Tom Powell. Remember, remember, if you're listening to this, that means you made it through another week, and margaritas are in order. And now your host, Tom Powell. All right, folks, welcome back in. As the man in the intro said, this is the second half podcast, and I'm Tom Powell. And the reason you should go get yourself margaritas this week is because it is finally Christmas weekend. It's Friday before the the holiday. You shouldn't really be doing too much work. And if you're putting 100% in today, you're doing it wrong. You're fucking it up, okay? Take it easy. The rest of your co-workers are coasting. Half of the fucking people you work with aren't even going to be heard from. And I'm not just talking about people in my inner circle either. I'm talking about everybody out there. It's the Friday before the holiday. I mean, for fuck's sake. Sunday is Christmas Eve. Monday is Christmas Day. Take it easy today. Go get yourself a pitcher of margaritas. And just kind of coast. Now, we here at the Powell household have some work to do. we got a little bit of cleaning to do. we got some food prep to do. Uh, our daughter, son-in-law, and grandkids are coming tomorrow, and they will be staying through Tuesday, so we have a fun weekend ahead of us. We have a unique weekend ahead of us, and that we're going to have the entire family here for the holidays for the first time ever on Christmas, the whole family. So um, it's going to be an interesting and fun-filled next few days. I can't wait to see our daughter We don't get to see them very often. I can't wait to see our grandkids. And yes, I can't wait to see my son-in-law because he's a cool guy. Before we get into the podcast, let me just say this. My wife always talks about how I have a horseshoe up my ass. I am one of the luckiest people she's ever met in her entire life. And I don't know how accurate that is, but I can tell you this. I really did luck out when it comes to family because a lot of people out there really don't like their in-laws in any way shape or form and I just lucked the hell out with my in-laws I have a mother-in-law that is next level awesome I could not hand pick a better mother-in-law I've got great uh, I've had two great sister-in-laws great cousins-in-laws And our son-in-law is pretty fucking cool. 
So from a standpoint of the in-laws, I I don't have a lot to complain about. I got things to complain about, don't get me wrong, but not a lot to complain about. So, you know, I'm looking forward to everybody being here this weekend. It's going to be hectic. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be packed. But it's also going to be fun. And my grandkids are coming. My grandbabies are coming. So, you know, sorry to get emotional on you guys real right off the bat, but this is an opportunity for me to do the good things in my youth for the people in my life beyond the three kids that Renee and I had, which was what we always thought our family was going to be. And now we've got this wonderful new group of people in our lives. We've got these two fantastic grandkids, and I get to share some of those traditions with them. I'm getting old and sappy, folks, so take advantage of me while you can. Why the fuck am I always breaking down these days? Any hoodles. Uh, before we get into what we're going to talk about this week as far as the news goes, a quick reminder uh, to make sure you swing by my website if you haven't already. Uh, that uh, that website would be oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. There you're going to find uh, almost anything you want to know about me. You're going to find my blog. I try to put a new blog piece out every Wednesday. Be sure and subscribe to that so that you can be notified when new blog pieces hit. You're going to find links on where you can buy my first two books. I have two self-published books entitled uh, A Grateful Life, The Life Story of a Husband, Father, and Taco-Loving Deadhead, and Dearest Renee, Letters from the Coronavirus War of 2020. You're going to find a link to my other podcast. If you uh, if you like this podcast, I do a second podcast over on Patreon. I do two episodes a month at about an hour apiece. It's $4.20 for the month. And over there, I interview people about their lives, their life experiences, what projects they have coming up. I have a new episode uh, with Dan Salinger from uh, TikTok that's aired, that aired this morning, uh, just a little while ago. It's, it's quarter to eight my time, central time. It aired about 45 minutes ago. So uh, make sure you go check that out. I've got uh, a handful of new episodes up with with interview guests. I've got a bunch lined up for 2024. Make sure you subscribe to that. Those 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 episodes are getting good. Yeah, you're also going to find a link to my store. I have merch like anybody else. You're going to find links on where you can follow me on all the various social media sites. Links uh, to other podcasts I've appeared in. Links to newspaper articles I've appeared in. Links on how to contact me. And much more. Once again, that's all at oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. Now, very quickly, very quickly, let's do a short football segment, as I do every week during the uh, NFL season. Um, I give you my NFL picks sure to go wrong. Last week, I went 12-3 and with my picks. It was a very good week picking for me. That brings my season record to 122-88. and And if anybody's out there doing the math, they're going, you're, you're missing some games. I don't typically do the Thursday games because my podcast airs on Friday. So uh, I exclude the Thursday games in my picks. 
like I'm going to do right now when I give you this week's winners, which will be the Bengals, Bills, Colts, Packers, Texans, Lions, Jets, Seahawks, Jaguars, Bears, Dolphins, Broncos, Chiefs, Eagles, and 49ers. Once again, those are my NFL picks. Sure to go wrong. Do not take those picks and go bet your money with them because you will lose your ass. All right, on to the news of the week. And I want to start in Iceland where uh, they've been watching volcanic activity and worrying about an eruption and it has finally erupted. I'm going to read to you now from Scientific American. After three essentially safe volcanic eruptions in a remote valley-filled swath of Iceland's Reykjanes Peninsula, and I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, a fourth has now begun. The latest eruption, which was anticipated for weeks, has imperiled a power plant, the Blue Lagoon Spa Resort, and, most significantly, the coastal town of Grindavik. On December 18th, after 10 p.m. local time, a nearly four-kilometer-long fissure tore open the ground just to the town's northeast, pouring ribbons of lava into the night. The situation is ongoing, somewhat unpredictable, and varyingly perilous. Quote, the fissure has opened close to the worst-case scenario position, says Tom Winder, a volcanic seismologist at the University of Iceland. The eruption which could last for days, weeks, or months, could completely avoid the town or force lava into it. As of the afternoon of December 19th, the eruption's intensity had declined, and molten rock is not flowing towards the town. Things could suddenly shift, however, and scientists are on high alert. It's an active crisis, says Samuel Mitchell, a a volcanologist at the University of Bristol in England. So how did we get here? Iceland is a a complex jigsaw of volcanoes, and each section of the island has a different style of volcanism. Although Iceland's southwestern Rake James Peninsula, I always want to say Rick James Peninsula, and I know that that's insulting, but that's what it sounds like to me. Anyway, that peninsula has its fair share of volcanic mountains and hills. It arguably specializes in fissure-style eruptions where lava spurts and oozes out of newly formed cracks in the ground. Between 1210 and 1240, fissure eruptions happen sporadically across the peninsula, a period known as the Rick James Fires. Then, after nearly 800 years of volcanic silence, a maelstrom of earthquakes that started in early 2020 has la- and lasted 15 months implied that an eruptive awakening was nigh. Finally, in March of 2021, a series of fissures opened near the remote volcanic mountain of, and I'm not even going to per- pretend to pronounce this, it's spelled F-A-G-R-A-D-A-L-S-F-J-A-L-L, Fragrashva. Fargenhagen. It it opened near the remote volcanic mountain of Fargenhagen. And lava filled up an uninhabited valley for the next six months. By the time two smaller additional eruptions briefly followed nearby, one in August of 22 and another this past summer, scientists were relatively certain that a new multi 
decadal period of eruptions had arrived. They had hoped the inevitable fourth Fisher eruption would be comparably remote, but in late October, things took a concerning turn. Scientists observed a spike in seismic activity and ground deformation atop a volcanic system named Schwarzenegger to the southwest of the previous three eruptions. I'm not trying to make fun of the names. I just can't pronounce them. The seismicity was clustered around a miniature mountain called Porbjorn, which is near the Blue Lagoon Spa, a geothermal power station, and the town of Grindavik, home to 3,500 people. The bottom line to all of this activity in Iceland is that the people of Iceland are in a bad spot. It's not a very big country to begin with. The entire country is made of volcanic activity, and scientists say that they have entered into a period where they will get earthquakes and volcanic eruptions for the next several decades. Decades. Not days, not weeks, not months, not even years. Decades. I don't even have words to describe the fear that would exist inside of me if I was in Iceland. It would be assholes and elbows for me, folks. You would see me run into the airport and be like, get, the, get me the fuck out of here. I don't give a shit where, just not here. Wow. Uh, my thoughts go out to everybody in Iceland. I hope you guys stay safe. I don't even know how to go about covering such a news story other than to say... Damn, that's fucked up. I guess we'll uh, we'll keep watching this story and see if this activity keeps continuing as the scientists predict. Uh, moving on to some things we can control, but are unfortunately reaching uncontrollable levels in some areas. Uh, cargo and oil ships are avoiding the Red Sea like the fucking plague because of missiles being fired at them. And who can blame them? I'm going to read to you now from The Guardian. More than 100 container ships have been rerouted around southern Africa to avoid the Suez Canal in a sign of disruption to global trade caused by Houthi rebels attacking vessels on the western coast of Yemen. The shipping company Kuhn and Nagel said it had identified 103 ships that had already changed course with more expected to go around South Africa's Cape of Good Hope. The diversion adds about 6,000 nautical miles to a typical journey from Asia to Europe, potentially adding three or four weeks to product delivery time. The Houthi rebels, who are aligned with Iran, have said that they attacked ships in response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Israel is retaliating against an attack by Hamas, which controls Gaza. The U.S. said on Tuesday it would try to lead a naval coalition to protect shipping in the Suez Canal. About 19,000 ships navigate the Suez Canal every year, making it one of the world's key routes, particularly for fossil fuels and goods moving between Asia and Europe. The ships that have diverted so far had the capacity to carry 1.3 million 20-foot containers, Kuhn and Nagel said. Oil and gas tankers have also diverted, with BP the biggest company to publicly state that it has done so. Its rival Shell declined the comment. The disruption has contributed to higher oil prices. The 
price of Brent crude oil features, the global benchmark, rose by 1.2% on Wednesday, above $80, having fallen below $74 a week earlier. Further price increases could eventually feed uh, uh, through the consumer energy tariff, adding to inflation. Michael Aldwell, Kuhn and Nagel's board member for Sea Logistics, said, The extended time spent on the water is anticipated to absorb 20% of global fleet capacity, leading to potential delays in the availability of shipping resources. Moreover, delays in returning empty equipment to Asia are likely to pose challenges, further further impacting the overall reliability of supply chains. Companies around the world, including several large uh, car makers, are monitoring the situation to work out if their supply chains could be affected. The last big unexpected closure of the Suez Canal came in March of 2021 when the ever-given container ship blocked passage for six days. The latest disruption will not affect the retail industry this Christmas because stocks are built up weeks or even months in advance, meaning products are already in stores or in UK warehouses. An extended disruption to normal shipping patterns could eventually cause shortages of products for consumers or parts for manufacturers, although few have reported any effects so far. The disruption has coincided with a period in which many factories shut down temporarily for Christmas, giving some extra time for companies to receive crucial supplies. Some manufacturers had already switched from just-in-time supply chains that relied on goods arriving promptly to a less effective but more resilient just-in-case model with more energy emergency stockpiles of parts. So, um, right now, this is going to have the biggest impact on Europe. Right now, this is going to have the biggest impact uh, on 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 countries far away from us here in the United States. But if it continues, the disruption flow is going to eventually reach the United States as well. Container availabilities, container ship availabilities, uh, increased fuel prices, uh, longer times to get containers out, it could eventually ripple into the United States and cause some issues, which is probably why the United States is steamrolling warships to the area so that they can try and avert more cargo ships getting attacked. Um, it's not a good scene. It, it really isn't. A couple of ships have been hit with missiles so far, and, and they're just not willing to take the chance. And so they're making the extraordinarily long journey around Africa, which is just going to fuck up supply chains left and right if they have to keep doing it. We already have supply chain fuck-ups as a result of the water levels in the Panama Canal. We don't need the Suez Canal also being disruptive to the supply chain. So I hope that the military forces that are being sent to the region are, are going to be capable of dialing this thing in so that we can get our supply chains running the right way. Uh, I'm, full disclosure, as somebody who owns a business uh, that is part of the supply chain, it's it, it's not something that I that I I ever wanted to see happen. It's not something that I ever wanted to hear happen, and and I I hope it doesn't cause further disruption in what has already been a fucked up supply chain since 2020. Uh, Bomb the fuck out of these rebels. I, I, I know that that's more of a conservative Republican viewpoint. Bomb the fuck out of these rebels. Seriously. 
if they're going to dis- if they're going to be fucking around with civilian cargo ships, if they're going to be firing missiles at civilian cargo ships, then fuck them. Blow them out of the fucking sky. Blow them out of the fucking water. Well, they live in a fucking desert in North Africa. Fine. If heat and glass, uh, heat and uh, uh, sand make glass, then by the time we're done with them, make that place look like Superman's apartment. I don't give a fuck. But don't let these shit, uh, these shit people get away with this stuff, man. These fucking people just want to cause havoc in the world. You got a problem with Israel? Fine. I, I'm not going to argue with your problem with Israel. Take it out on Israel then. Don't take it out on the rest of the goddamn world that had nothing to do with what's going on there. Don't take it out on a bunch of fucking civilian cargo ships that have nothing to do with what's going on there. If you don't have the balls to take your problem to who you have a problem with, then go fuck yourself, you ignorant shit stains. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In other global business news, U.S. Steel is set to be sold to a Japanese steel company for $14 billion. I'm now going to read to you from AP News. U.S. Steel, the Pittsburgh steel producer that played a key role in the nation's industrialization, is being acquired by Nippon Steel in an all-cash deal valued at approximately $14.1 billion. The transaction is worth about $14.9 billion when including the assumption of debt. The combined company will be among the top three steel producing companies in the world, according to 2022 figures from the World Steel Association. The price tag for U.S. Steel is nearly double what was offered just four months ago by rival Cleveland Cliffs. U.S. Steel, which rejected that offer, confirmed the offering price from Nippon earlier Monday. The tie-up would have created one of the top four outside of China, which dominates global steel production. U.S. steel executives were asked about a potential pushback from U.S. regulators over security concerns on Monday. This is going to increase competition here in the United States with a great ally to the United States, answered U.S. steel CEO David Barrett. It's a great fit, and we do not see that as a high risk, a high level risk factor. We'd say low level of risk, he added. U.S. Steel will keep its name and its headquarters in Pittsburgh, where it was founded in 1901 by J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, and others. It will become a subsidiary of Nippon. China and Chinese companies have come to dominate global steel production of the nearly 2 billion metric tons of steel produced annually across the globe. About 54% comes from China, according to the World Steel Association. China's Baowao Group, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, a state-owned iron company based in Shanghai, churned out nearly 120 million metric tons of steel in 2021. The combined Nippon and U.S. steel companies will produce less than 90 million metric tons of steel combined, with most of that coming from Nippon. 
2022, U.S. steel produced about 14.5 million tons. The U.S. currently ranks number four behind China, India, and Japan, and the blast furnace steel plants operated by U.S. steel are among the most costly to operate compared with more modern facilities that melt down scrap using arc furnaces. But U.S. steel plants with blast furnaces remain integral to U.S. manufacturing, particularly automakers. Earlier this year, U.S. Steel idled one of its blast furnaces in Granite City, uh, City, Illinois, in anticipation of a lower demand for steel, citing a strike against the big three automakers in Detroit. Soaring prices have fueled consolidation in the steel industry this decade. Steel prices more than quadrupled near the start of the pandemic to near $2,000 per metric ton by the summer of 2021 as supply chains experienced gridlock a symptom of surging demands for goods and the lack of anticipation of the demand. Nippon would pay $55 per share for U.S. Steel, said Monday that the deal will, Nippon, which will pay $55 per share for U.S. Steel, said Monday that the deal will bolster its manufacturing and technology capabilities. It will also expand Nippon's production in the U.S. and add to its positions in Japan, India, and the the general region. Um, Listen, I'm a capitalist. I make no bones about being a capitalist. So if one company has the ability to buy another company, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. That's how capitalism works. I have something for sale. You want to buy it. I want a certain amount of money for it. You have that money. We make a deal. Where I do have a problem is that if things like this continue then eventually we as a nation will lose the ability to control our own resources. We will lose the ability to control the things that we need to control for the betterment of our country. And from that aspect, deals like this can be a bit scary. From that aspect, things like this can seem like a bad idea. Now, there is a bipartisan group of members of Congress that are opposed to this deal for reasons similar to what I just mentioned, in addition to what they deem to be security risks. We don't know necessarily what the security risks would be unless they're talking about the inability for the United States to manufacture steel through the Defense Authorization Act, the Defense Production Authorization Act, in a time of need. If it's still based here in the United States, I don't understand how that would be a problem, but I guess it could potentially be a problem, which could have a negative impact on our national security. It could have negative national security implications. I just don't like the, 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 the fact that we might not have the ability to control our own resources in the United States. Once we sell off the ability to control all of our our natural resources, the only way we get that back is through force. And I don't want to ever see that happen. Now, U.S. Steel didn't want to continue to operate under uh, its its current ownership, its U.S. ownership. It wanted to sell, and it did, or it's on the verge of doing it. The, the, the deal still needs to be finalized and approved, but it, it looks like it's probably going to go through. So I guess we'll see what happens 
with a Japanese firm owning, owning one of the largest uh, steel manufacturers and one of the steel manufacturers that, as I mentioned in the article, was one of the reasons for this nation's industrialization. When we were industrializing as a nation and we were building this nation, literally building the nation, U.S. Steel was a key component. And now it's going to be Japanese-owned. So, we'll see. I, I don't particularly care for this move, but but we'll see. Okay? Uh, I can tell you this. From a corporate standpoint, when something like this happens, there are some changes that are made that are not foreseen. One company absorbs another. Some company gets a lot of money and, and, and decides that it's going it, to it's going to expand. It's going to buy other companies. We saw that in the landscape industry in the Chicagoland area, uh, with 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 companies like Acres just buying up smaller landscape companies, consolidating their power and growing and growing and growing. But with every one of those changes, uh, with that, with every one of those acquisitions came changes that were n- not necessarily positive for the original company. And, and there could be some negative impact on the Pittsburgh market depending on what the changes could be from Nippon. So we're going to have to watch that. I hope everybody that works at U.S. Steel continues to have a job. I know it can be scary when you hear news like this, but uh, hopefully everything works out for you guys. Where things aren't working out in this country is with more and more companies deciding to forego year-end bonuses. This is a conversation my wife and I just had yesterday, and I'm going to read to you now from CFO Magazine. Amid strong signals of improvement in the U.S. economy, companies aren't getting quite so confident that they're indulging in a holiday spending spree this season. In fact, companies overall seem to be pulling back from good cheer. According to a Challenger Gray and Christmas survey released on Monday, fewer employees are offering year-end bonuses compared to 2022. More companies are reducing the size of bonuses, and even non-monetary and nominal awards are being truncated. None of the charges from last year is huge. Uh, changes from last year is huge, but overall, the de-emphasis on bonuses portrays a somewhat conservative corporate mindset. As companies enter 2024, some are doing away with the small tokens of appreciation in favor of saving money during a time of perceived economic softness, said Andrew Challenger, workplace and labor expert at the outplacement and leadership development firm. He added, companies' year-end plans are reflecting the position that 2024 will bring slower growth. Of course, economic expectations Uh, expectations frequently proved to be off-target. A year ago, many 2023 forecasts looked for low growth or flat GDP or even a recession, but at present, the picture is brightening. GDP has picked up since the year began, topping the run with a 5.2% year-over growth, year-over-year growth in the third quarter. At the same time, inflation has eased, and the Federal Reserve recently announced plans for three interest interest rate cuts in 2024. Challenger noted that employees more inclined. Uh, Challenger noted that with employees more inclined this year to stay in their jobs, efforts to retain workers may have decreased in priority. Uh, 
However, hiring plans suggest that while companies are being less generous with year-end bonuses, some have their sites trained on more strategic goals. Almost half, 46%, of the companies surveyed reported that they increased hiring in 2023 and expected to continue adding workers in the next year. That was up from 39% of survey participants that responded as such a year ago, although was still well below the 63% who planned to add workers at the end of 2021. Only 12% said hiring is likely to decrease in 2024, although that stat too was higher than last year, 9%. A third, 34%, of surveyed companies said they're not awarding bonuses this year compared with 27% a year ago. Meanwhile, 15% of companies are lowering the value of their bonuses, up from 11% that decreased bonuses last year. Also, 24% of companies plan to award a non-monetary or nominal award, down from 29% who reported as such in uh, uh, the previous year. Fewer respondents reported offering bonuses at other times of the year. Of the 66% of companies offering bonuses, 27% report that they occur at times other than year-end, compared with 32% last year. Challenger survey also asked about companies' business conditions coming into 2024. Only 11% said conditions are worse than last year, while more than a third, 35%, said conditions had improved. The survey, which included companies of various sizes and industry, was conducted in November. Now, what is my position on year-end bonuses? I I think that year-end bonuses are crucial. Not to try and retain employees. Not to try and boost morale of employees. If I want to try and boost morale of employees, I should be doing it on the daily. If I want to try to retain employees, I should be doing things on the daily, the weekly, the monthly to retain my employees. The reason why I like year-end bonuses, the reason why I think year-end bonuses are crucial is because it shows some form of additional appreciation for the people that work hard to make your company go. I mean, my, my father worked for a company, a, a, a manufacturing company, a, a machine shop in Burr Ridge, Illinois, for years and years and years. And they were one of the cheapest fucking companies I had ever seen in my entire life. I actually worked for them for a brief period of time under my father's tutelage. And even those cheap motherfuckers gave everybody two crisp $100 bills at Christmas time. Was it a lot? No. Was it something? Yeah. I'm going to give you some full disclosure. I have been talking all year about how horrible the agricultural exporting business has been and thus how much our trucking company has suffered. Well, we are a week to go till the end of the year, and we are currently $14,000 in the negative for the year. We are going to lose money as a company this year. There is zero way that we make up that $14,000 deficit in the last week of the year. It's simply not happening. Maybe a couple of grand maybe we are going to end up with a minimum of 12 grand in the hole for the year and even we gave our drivers a $500 bonus this year and that's after losing money if you're a major corporation out there you should be given something you should be given something now as my wife rightly points out rather take a raise than a bonus 
I, I, I would much rather have a raise where the money comes in on a steady basis and it alters the way that we can live uh, long term rather than a bonus, which is a short burst of money. But goddamn, something, anything. All these companies out there are just going, hell yeah, we know the economy's doing much better. We know that these people aren't going to go anywhere. They're not looking for a new job, so fuck them. We're not going to give them bonuses. That is just wrong. It's wrong. These are the people that bust their ass every day, day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out to make your company go, and you can't give them a little extra at the end of the year? It's just not right. And listen, there can still be great owners that don't give bonuses. The last company that my wife worked for was a great company. They did. They took care of my wife and us as a family, in my opinion. And the guy that she worked for, I think, is a great guy. I, I love the way that the guy gave a shit about my wife. The one thing... That really, that they did, that not just the one thing, but the, 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 in regards to this, the one thing that they did that was wrong was they never gave Christmas bonuses. And, and it's not an easy business to be in. It's not an easy industry to be in. The people at the facility worked their ass off. A little something at the end of the year is in order. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So if you're one of those companies that was surveyed and you're saying, ah, listen, we're not going to do an end-of-year bonus, rethink that shit, okay? Go watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Fast forward to the end. Watch the last scene. Rethink that shit. Give something. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. My wife and I, my wife and I and our partner who own this trucking company together have poured, listen to me here, okay, thousands of dollars. Thousands. I have poured thousands of dollars into our trucking company this year. An, an insane amount of money into the trucking company this year just to keep it afloat. We're going to end up with a negative number for the year, and we're still given bonuses. If we can do it, these major companies can do it. If we can go, hey, listen, to our drivers, hey, listen, I, we know it's not much. But here's an extra 500 to help out in the month of December. Then some multi-million dollar company can surely dig deep and come up with a few hundred for their, their employees, their workers. It's just not right. It's just not right. All right. 36 minutes in, let's move into politics and discuss how the MAGA cultists are going nuts over Ashley Biden because she owes some back tax money. How much back tax money? $5,000. I'm going to read to you now from American Military News. A recent tax lien docket shows President Joe Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden, allegedly owes roughly $5,000 in income taxes. The recent tax lien docket, which was first obtained by Fox News, shows that the president's daughter owes about $5,000 in income taxes from a period starting in 2015. The Pennsylvania Department of Revenue defines a tax lien as a charge or uh, charge on real or personal property for the satisfaction of debt or duty. 
According to the tax lien provided to Fox News by Garrett Ziegler, founder of the Marco Polo nonprofit organization and a previous aide to former President Donald Trump, the Pennsylvania Department of Revenue in Philadelphia County notified Ashley Biden on December 1st that the amount of such unpaid tax, interest, additions, or penalties is a lien in favor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania upon the taxpayer's property, real, personal, or both, as the case may be. Quote, unquote. Fox News reported that the period in question spanned from Jan 1, 2015, during Joe Biden's vice presidency under former President Barack Obama's administration, until Jan 1, 2021, during the final days of the Trump administration. Quote, the scale is not like anything Hunter, uh, is not anything like Hunter, but Joe is constantly talking about how wealthy and connected people do not pay their fair share and can afford to pay more, and it just so happens that both of his living children did not pay their taxes, Ziegler told Fox News. This is just another example <clears throat> excuse me. This is just another example of the Bidens being careless. Like you'd think that they would show a little bit more prudence when you're the American when you're the American first family to make sure you don't have any tax liens on you especially going into an election year Ziegler founded the bidenlaptopmedia.com website which features almost 10,000 photos from Hunter Biden's laptop spanning the time period between 2008 and 2019 according to Fox News Ziegler claimed his team discovered Ashley Biden's tax lien while performing a search in the system of the Philadelphia County Courthouse Representative Dan Mauser, Republican of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania's former revenue secretary from 2011 to 2015, told the New York Post that Ashley Babbitt's tax delinquency was either due to carelessness or privilege. Ashley Biden has an estimated net worth of nearly $2 million, and she can't even find the time to pay $5,000 of her Pennsylvania taxes, Mauser said. So therefore, the Commonwealth has a lien on her property, meaning Pennsylvania is a priority creditor and must be paid before Ashley can make any substantial financial transactions, he said. Maurer claimed that compliance with tax payment in the state of Pennsylvania is not difficult and that the president's daughter has the financial ability to pay her taxes. Describing Ashley Biden's tax situation, the Pennsylvania Republican said, at best it's sad, at worst it's awful. Joe Biden loves chastising American taxpayers in the highest tax bracket. Maybe there are a couple of other people he should be chastising. What this sounds like to me is an oversight somewhere, somehow, for a measly five grand, which will get paid off quickly. It'll be taken care of. But this shows that they don't have anything on Joe. If they had anything on Joe, they wouldn't be going after Ashley for five grand, which was clearly overlooked somewhere. But that's fine. When Ashley pays her five grand and Hunter pays the back money that he owes, what are you guys going to do as far as the Trumps go? You guys are pissing and moaning that Ashley Babbitt has a net worth of $2 million and has a $5,000 tax bill. How about a guy who claims he's worth billions of dollars and only pays $700 in federal taxes? You going to go look into him or does that not suit the narrative? Ashley Babbitt will have this bill paid off by the end of the fucking week, most likely. It's going to disappear, but they're going to ride this all the way to the election because they can't pin anything on Joe. So all they can do is try to make his kids look bad. And in hopes, uh, in making his kids look bad, their hopes are that it will in turn make Joe look bad. Because they can't talk about what their guy does. They can't ta- talk about what their guy stands for. They can't talk about what their guy has done. They can only try and smear the other person. 
Joe Biden is out there talking about his record. Joe Biden is out there talking about what he's done for the American people. Joe Biden is out there talking about what he wants to continue to do for the American people. Donald Trump and his supporters are out there talking about Hunter and Ashley Biden and their back taxes. And that tells you everything you need to know about the 2024 presidential election cycle, folks. They are going after Ashley Biden for a $5,000 back tax bill. Well, he's rich, or she's rich, she's connected, she should pay your bills, right? I wonder if that same energy is going to carry over to our next story, where Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay election workers he defamed a total of $148 million, but in typical right-wing fashion, he's already claimed bankruptcy, asked for bankruptcy protection against that $148 million, so he doesn't have to pay his bills. I'm going to read to you now from NPR. Former Trump campaign attorney Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay a staggering $148 million to two former Georgia election workers he spread lies about following the 2020 election. The decision on Friday comes at the end of a week-long federal civil trial in Washington, D.C., where an eight-person jury heard from the workers, Shay Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, about how 2020 election conspiracy spread by Giuliani and former President Donald Trump turned their lives upside down. I was afraid for my life, Moss said during her testimony on Tuesday. I literally felt that somebody would attempt to hang me and there was nothing anyone could do about it, she said. Jurors heard numerous... Excuse me one moment, I'm sorry. You know, sometimes you just got to blow your nose in the middle of a podcast. Sometimes you're just cranking along and the boogers are just sitting right there and you're like, Anyway, I digress. Jurors heard numerous violent and racist voicemails the women received after Giuliani used his massive platform as a campaign attorney for Trump to spread lies about their actions as election workers in Georgia. In the time after voting ended in 2020, Giuliani shared video from uh, an absentee ballot counting facility in Fulton County where he falsely claimed where he falsely claimed, remember that, falsely claimed, showed the two women cheating and scanning ballots multiple times to benefit Joe Biden. He lied. I'm going to reserve my commentary till the end. Let me just move on. A hand uh, count audit in Georgia found votes to have been tallied correctly in the 2020 election, and a years-long investigation by the Georgia Secretary of State's office found the accusations against Moss and Freeman to be false and unsubstantiated. There was no evidence that suggested they did anything wrong except show up for work and work hard, testified Frank Braun, who oversaw the investigation for the Secretary of State's office. In August, District Judge Beryl, uh, uh, Beryl Howell found Giuliani liable for defamation due to his lack of cooperation in the case, and Giuliani conceded as part of the proceeding that his statement about Ma- statements about Moss and Freeman were false. So the trial this week was only held to determine the damages Moss and Freeman were owed. Speaking outside the courthouse Friday after the verdict, Freeman said that the money won't bring back her past uh, life or her name. Moss said, our greatest wish was that no one is that no one, no election worker or voter or school board member or anyone else ever experienced anything like what we went through. Giuliani, meanwhile, called the jury's award absurd and indicated that he thought it would be overturned on appeal. 
It's not the only legal trouble for Giuliani, a former federal prosecutor and two-term New York City mayor, related to his efforts to subvert Georgia's 2020 election. He faces more than a dozen charges in the racketeering investigation brought by the Fulton County District Attorney. Throughout the week-long civil trial, uh, civil trial, attorneys for Moss and Freeman enumerated the wide reach of election lies and the many ways in which those lives, uh, ru- lies ruined the lives of the two women. An expert witness specializing in marketing and social media estimated that the relevant falsehoods reached tens of millions of people and that a strategic communications campaign to repair the women's reputation could cost as much as $47.5 million. Freeman broke down crying Wednesday as she described leaving her home after receiving a warning from the FBI that her life could be at risk. Ruby Freeman, I hope the federal government hangs you and your daughter from the Capitol Dome, said one message Freeman received at the time. I pray that I will be sitting close enough to hear your neck snap, the message continued. Now, let me just put a pin in this story because we're going to touch on right-wing violence at the end of this podcast, so keep this story in mind when you hear my last story. Freeman said she no longer feels comfortable introducing herself to anyone. The only thing you have in life is your name, Freeman said. My life is messed up because of someone putting my name out there. Giuliani's defense attorney, Joseph Sibley, argued throughout the week that while the former mayor did spread falsehoods about Moss and Freeman, many other outlets and people did too, so Giuliani shouldn't bear the entire brunt of how those lies manifested. Mr. Sibley has a hard job, says Judge Hall at one point, after it came out that Giuliani Giuliani had continued to lie about the women while talking to reporters on the courthouse steps earlier in the week. Giuliani declined to testify as part of the trial, however, and as one would guess, he has already filed for bankruptcy protection, listing the debts he needs to be protected from as unpaid taxes, legal fees, and the $148 million he now owes these two women. So all of the people who are pissing and moaning that the Bidens haven't paid their uh, their bills. Ashley Biden owes $5,000. What do you say about Rudy Giuliani trying to get bankruptcy protection against the $148 million he owes these two women? The unpaid taxes he hasn't paid, wink, wink, and the legal fees he hasn't paid his lawyers. I'm guessing they're not going to have anything to say about that because snakes are always going to protect other snakes, right? Speaking of snakes, let's move on to Colorado where Donald Trump has been banned for the moment from the ballot and Vivek Ramswamy has securely placed Trump's balls back in his mouth. I'm going to first read to you now from Reuters. Former President Donald Trump is disqualified from serving serving as U.S. President and cannot appear on the primary ballot in Colorado because of his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by his supporters, the state's top court ruled on Tuesday. The historic 4-3 ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court, likely to be taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court, makes Trump the first presidential candidate deemed candidate deemed ineligible for the White House under a rarely used constitutional provision that bars officials who have engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office. The ruling applies only to Colorado's March 5th Republican primary, but it could affect Trump's status in the state for the November 5th general election. 
nonpartisan U.S. election forecasters view Colorado as safely Democratic, meaning that President Joe Biden will likely carry the state regardless of Trump's fate there. Trump vowed to appeal the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Colorado court said it would delay the effort or the effect of its decision until at least January 4th, 2024, to allow for an appeal. In other words, they stayed their own ruling to allow for an appeal. The ruling sets the stage for the Supreme Court, whose 6-3 conservative majority majority includes three Trump appointees, to consider whether Trump is eligible to serve another term as president. The lawsuit uh, lawsuit is viewed as a test case for a wider effort to disqualify Trump from state uh, state ballots under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was enacted after the U.S. Civil War to keep supporters of the Confederacy from serving in the government. The Colorado court concluded that the U.S. Constitution bars Trump, the frontrunner for the Republican nomination in 2024, from appearing on the ballot because of his role instigating violence at the Capitol as lawmakers met to certify the results of the 2020 election. The court's majority acknowledged the decision was uncharted territory. We do not reach these conclusions lightly, the majority justices wrote. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions uh, now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to uphold the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. Trump's campaign called the court's decision undemocratic, the Colorado Supreme Court issued a completely flawed decision tonight, and we will swiftly file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, a spokesman, or spokesperson, I'm sorry, for the Trump campaign said. The decision reverses a ruling by a lower court judge who found Trump engaged in insurrection by inciting his supporters to violence, but concluded that, as president, Trump was not an officer of the United States who could be disqualified under the amendment. Now, before I go on and read to you from the Daily Beast, let's just talk about that part for a minute. So, as President of the United States, Trump was not an officer of the United States? Bound by the U.S. Constitution? Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, this is akin to when Trump said here recently that he never took an oath to uphold the Constitution. And yes, he said that. Trump's lawyers argued in court, well, he never actually took an oath to uphold the Constitution. Like, we didn't all see his inauguration. Jesus fucking Christ. The guy didn't shut the fuck up about his inauguration. We saw it on TV. Anyway, moving on to the Vivek part of this, I'm going to read you now from the Daily Beast. 2024 presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy vowed on Tuesday to withdraw his name from Colorado's upcoming Republican primary and called on his fellow candidates to do the same. The biotechnological technology entrepreneur and devoted culture warrior's decision comes in response to the state Supreme Court ruling just hours before that former President Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president under the 14th Amendment because he engaged in insurrection by inciting the Jan 6th Capitol riot. I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary unless Trump is allowed to be on the state's ballot, and I demand that Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, and Nikki Haley do the same immediately, or else they are tactically, uh, tacitly endorsing this illegal maneuver, which will have disastrous consequences for our country, he wrote in a lengthy post on Twitter. Why do I bring up that part? 
because Vivek Ramaswamy is not running to be president of the United States. Vivek Ramaswamy is running to be Donald Trump's VP. If you look at everything Vivek Ramaswamy has said on every single debate stage, his posts on social media, his public positions across the board, he is not running to be president. He is running to be Trump's VP pick, and Trump is never going to pick him to be VP. But Vivek Ramaswamy will never stop sucking on Trump's balls. Ever. I don't know how this guy is not humiliated and embarrassed by his actions. I don't know how he can show his face on the daily, given the way he is acting in this primary process, as just an absolute lapdog to Trump. Now, what are my opinions on Trump being disqualified from the ballot? I personally, initially, upon initially hearing it, thought well, the Supreme Court's going to overturn that in two seconds. As soon as it gets to the Supreme Court, they're going to overturn it. And a couple of lawyers that I I follow on social media have the same opinion. But then, a handful of legal scholars, both on the right and the left, have come out since this ruling, have read everything that went into the case, and have said, I don't know, I I don't see this happening. They believe that enough conservative justices, it's not going to be unanimous, but they believe that enough conservative justices may actually uphold Colorado's ruling with a few of the more far-reaching right-wing conservative justices uh, uh, dissenting. And and, um, if they uphold it, if it gets to the Supreme Court, which we think it's going to get to the Supreme Court and we're going to have some kind of decision before, let's say, Valentine's Day. If they uphold Colorado's decision, there are like seven or eight other states that are trying to get Trump boot, uh, booted from the ballot as well. And it will be it will open the floodgates. If the Supreme Court upholds this, it will be case after case after case after case after case being expedited through all of these various states to disqualify Trump from the ballot using the precedence that was set by Colorado and the fact that the Colorado case was upheld by the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court overturns Colorado's decision, then a couple of things happen. One, Trump's on the ballot. We don't have anything to worry about because he's never going to win Colorado. It's a blue state. Biden's going to win it, period. Secondly, it shows that conservatives don't really give a fuck about states' rights. Because if they did, they would allow states to do what states want to do, right? So it's an interesting spot for the uh, conservative Supreme Court to be in because they are going to hear this case. Now, they could say, listen, we're just not going to hear this case, which also puts them in a position of agreeing with, essentially, the Colorado Supreme Court. So this is going to be an extraordinarily interesting Supreme Court case to watch and one that is going to have historical implications for this country for the remainder of its existence. This will be a case that will be talked about 500 years from now if we are still a nation at that point in time. And of course, the case out of Colorado, excuse me one one more time, damn, got a little uh, boogie action going on a couple days before Christmas. Of course, the case in Colorado has brought out the loons. I'm going to read to you now from NBC News. In the 24 hours since the Colorado Supreme Court kicked former President Donald Trump off the state's Republican primary ballot, social media outlets have been flooded with threats against the justices who ruled in the case, according to a report obtained by NBC News. 
Advanced Democracy, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that conducts public interest research, identified a significant violent rhetoric uh, against the justices and Democrats, <coughs> often in direct response to Trump's posts about the ruling on his platform, Truth Social. They found that some Truth Social, uh, some social media users posted justices' email addresses, phone numbers, and office building addresses. Quote, this ends when we kill these fuckers, a user wrote on a pro-Trump forum that was used by several Jan 6 rioters. Quote, what do you call seven justices from the Colorado Supreme Court at the bottom of the ocean, asked another user. A good start, he answered. Posts, whose images and links were included in the report, noted a variety of methods that could be used to kill those perceived as Trump's enemies. Hollow point bullets rifles, ropes, bombs, and more. Quote, kill judges, behead judges, roundhouse kick a judge into the concrete, read a post on a fringe website. The post went on to continue to say, slam dunk a judge's baby into the trash can. Let me read the entirety of that last post again for you one more time so you get the full weight of what these people are saying. Kill judges, behead judges, roundhouse kick a judge into the concrete, slam dunk a judge's baby into the trash can. The threats fit into a predictable and familiar pattern seen time and time again after legal developments against Trump. After the FBI searched Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida, a man who had been at the U.S. Capitol on Jan 6, 2021, attacked the FBI field office in Cincinnati with a nail gun while holding an AR-15-style rifle, which, if I could just for just one moment, shows just how fucking stupid these people are. You have... A high-powered rifle, and you attacked the field office with a fucking nail gun? You're an idiot. When a grand jury in Georgia indicted Trump, some of his supporters posted uh, the grand juror's addresses online. When U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin was assigned to Special Counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference case against Trump, she faced threats from Trump's supporters. A federal appeals court pointed out the pattern when it upheld a narrow gag order against Trump in his election interference case this month, nothing that those he publicly targets are often threatened or harassed. Noting that those he publicly targets are often threatened and harassed. Daniel Jones, the president, uh, advance, the president of Advanced Democracy, uh, said that the consistency of violent threats and rhetoric was especially concerning. We are seeing significant violent language and threats being made against this Colorado, uh, the Colorado justices and others perceived to have been behind yesterday's Colorado Supreme Court ruling. Jones, a former FBI investigator and staffer for the Senate Intelligence Committee, told NBC News in a statement, the normalization of this type of violent rhetoric and the lack of remedial action by social media entities is cause for significant concern. Trump's statements, which has sought to delegitimize and politicize the actions of the courts, is serving as a key driver of the violent rhetoric. Political leaders on both sides of the political aisle need to speak out against these calls for violence, and social media platforms need to reassess their role in hosting and promoting this rhetoric. A spokesperson for the Colorado Supreme Court did not immediately respond to a request for a comment, and a Trump campaign official did not immediately respond for a request, uh, to a request for comment either.
<clears throat> this is MAGA. This is what we're up against. If, if we don't like what you do, we're just going to kill you. If we don't like the outcome of a case, we're going to kill you. If we don't like the outcome of an election, we're going to kill you. Whatever it is that we don't like, we're just going to fucking kill you. This is MAGA. And the ironic part about it is, is what we see is MAGA screaming and yelling, rightfully so, about people in the Middle East who behead their enemies, who kill women, children, and innocent civilians. And then you see people say things like, kill judges, behead judges, roundhouse, roundhouse kick a judge into the concrete, slam dunk a judge's baby into the trash can. If you have ever wondered if you were on the right side of the uh, the correct side of the political aisle because you're not a Trump supporter, let this story be proof to you forever that you picked correctly. Is every MAGA Trump supporter like this? No. I know Trump supporters that are not like this at all. I know Trump supporters that agree with Trump's policies but don't agree with the rhetoric. I know Trump supporters that agree with Trump's positions but don't agree with the violence. But the majority of them are like this. The majority of them, if they won't say this, they'll support this. This is what MAGA is. MAGA the people who support Trump in the most extreme ways are a fucking cancer on this society, on this country, on our body politic. They are a fucking disease. And I am done talking in platitudes about them. I'm done tiptoeing around this. They are a fucking disease. And when Trump loses in 2024, and that is what's going to fucking happen, Trump is going to lose the election in 2024, period. When that happens, they will become more violent, they will become more unstable, they will become more unhinged, and you are going to see somebody get hurt as a result of it. And I hope that they find every last one of these motherfuckers and lock them up for the rest of their fucking lives. Slam dunk a judge's baby into a trash can? I thought you guys were pro-life. I thought you guys were pro-protecting the children. Behead judges? That sounds an awful lot like ISIS to me. Because that's what this is. The, 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 the term was coined a long time ago. Um, the American Taliban by Marcos, uh, oh, I forget his last name. He was, a, he was a good writer. The American Taliban is exactly what MAGA is. They are America's version of the extremism that we see from the Islam community. Islam is filled with wonderful people that just want to live their lives. But then you have that extremist part that takes things to another level. The Republican Party is filled with wonderful people that just want to go on living their life and not be bothered. And then you have that extremist portion, the MAGA portion. And this is what they're all about. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're one of these MAGA cultist fucksticks who back shit like this, fuck you and everything you stand for. Every fucking ounce of misery that ever fucking comes your fucking way, you fucking deserve, you fucking piece of shit.
having said all of that, this is going to be the end of this particular episode, and I want to say to everybody, except the MAGA fucksticks who support this kind of bullshit, that I hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas. I hope that you guys have a good Christmas in the face of good times and bad times. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas in the face of loss and grief. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas in the face of anxiety and depression or whatever it is you're dealing with. I hope that you have an opportunity to gather around loved ones and share some moments. I hope that you have an opportunity to relax and enjoy yourself among the people that you hold dear. I know that my family and I are going to do that very thing over the course of the next few days. We are going to enjoy the company that we are going to have. We are going to relish the time and we are going to make some new memories that are going to last a lifetime. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Make sure you tune in next week for what will hopefully be the uh, all-new and last episode of 2023 before we head into the new year. And until then, as always, stay grateful.